0: We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done.
1: If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinks at gmail.com or leave us a message on our voicemail at 1-904-468-7889.
0: Today's episode is, of course, listener feedback. Hello, Bill.
1: Hello, Larry. It's almost turkey day
0: it's almost turkey day as we're recording this and it's past turkey day when you'll be hearing this and we're, we'll be gearing up for christmas soon enough
1: yay <laughs>
0: <laughs> the holidays are in full swing black friday oh
1: did you have to say black friday really oh uh, yeah I really i can't even go to the stores during that day come on
0: uh well that's the whole idea behind uh cyber monday isn't that what they call it
1: i don't know i just in one one day i uh last year i went it was Black Friday or whatever they call it, and I was like, why is this place so full?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I walked in, I saw all the people, and I turned around, went back to my car and left. <laughs> I'm not dealing with that.
0: Were the tents and the camping equipment out front not a clue? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't
1: see any tents. I just saw a lot of people with a lot of stuff and a lot of pushing and shoving, and I said, I'll just go out. I feel sorry for those poor guys that had to work in their stores that day.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the folks that are getting overtime are doing just fine. <laughs>
1: Man. So anyway, um, how's your work week going? Pretty good?
0: Yeah, we're doing just fine. How about you? Same.
1: <laughs> it's work. Yeah, okay. Okay, we covered that. Then we can move right on.
0: All right, let's start with Lyle. Lyle wrote us an email and he said, your podcast has been fantastic for me. Sent you a small donation. Well, thanks, Lyle. We appreciate that. Wanted to comment on the backup show. Major tidbit for all computer users. And this is big, bold font. He typed this in. Test your backup before you really have to use it. (laughs) Wise words. Uh, He continues, a backup image with Jeep is the best. Takes time to learn it and time to do it. Well worth it for a computer you spent much time setting up. Timeshift is an application that works for me. I'm not a power user, but I install all kinds of stuff. Unbelievably, I've only trashed my system once. Timeshift made going back to a good state super easy. With Linux, it's not so hard to do a reinstall. However, it does take me some time to get my system set up the way I like it. Thanks, Lyle. Um, he has a link to Timeshift, the Timeshift application. There are some links in this um, post that he has here that will include to RSync and some other applications for backup like back in time and so on but let me read what he's written here time shift for linux is an application that provides functionality similar to the system restore feature in windows and the time machine tool in mac os time shift protects your system by taking incremental snapshots of the file system at regular intervals these snapshots can be restored at a later date to undo all changes to the system Snapshots are taken using rsync and hard links. Common files are shared between snapshots, which saves disk space. Each snapshot is a full system backup that can be browsed with a file manager. Timeshift is similar to applications like rsnapshot, back-in-time, and Time Vault but with different goals. It is designed to protect only system files and settings. User files, such as documents, pictures, and music, are excluded. This ensures that your files remain unchanged when you restore your system to an earlier date. If you need a tool to back up your documents and files, please take a look at the excellent Back in Time application, which is more configurable and provides options for saving user files. So thanks, Lyle. That sounds like a uh, um, a very good application. I've not used TimeShift no, you. No, I've
1: never even heard of it. But I have to say, when he was when you were reading his email, the first thing come to mind was that scene from two thousand one. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. Mm. <laughs> I restore my <laughs> files. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. I know the geek in me is coming out. But that, yes, I have to look into it. TimeShift, might might be what i've been looking for so thanks
0: yeah a lot of good suggestions in that that email so uh yeah. thanks lyle lots of uh, possibilities
1: yeah our next email comes from andrew who wrote hi bill and larry hey i got top billing good <laughs> i have some thoughts on two questions asked in the last listener feedback episode partitioning gparted the listener asked about a hard drive he was trying to partition not showing up in gparted when gparted starts up it scans for connected drives and then can be selected from the drop down menu in the top right corner of the window if the listener connects the drive in question after starting the program, he will need to select to refresh devices in the menu bar to rescan for drives. If the drive still fails to be seen, the drive is not likely connected properly. He said it was a new drive, so hopefully it doesn't have a faulty controller card on it. If it is an external drive powered by USB port, he should make sure that the port can supply enough power. Some drives require the 1x mini USB to 2x USB-A cable to draw power from the two USB ports to get enough power to run up. Then the next thing he wrote on was email issues. He said, the way the listener was describing his issue, it sounded like he was trying to use webmail in a Chrome window. It could be possible that the CMS isn't rendering properly and so producing a blank window. It sounds like his browser may need an update, or his browser has updated but the email provider hasn't updated their CSS or other scripts. If he doesn't want to use Firefox, he can consider trying Chromium or one of its spin offs. Either way, it sounds like a browser problem rather than a Linux problem. Heath, Perth, Australia, listener since 2011. That's actually a good point, Heath. that really, that makes
0: sense. In both of those cases, it's very difficult to tell what's actually going on without seeing the hardware, but, um, that's a couple of possibilities. So again, thanks.
1: Yes, I always wanted to say this. Heath is across the pond. Thanks. Heath.
0: All right. Uh, let's see here. Our next email is from Jim, another longtime listener. Um, Larry, Bill, is there a way to schedule a program to begin doing something, such as Audacity, to begin recording at a specific time? I remember hearing about Cron, but I do not know anything about it. Any input would be appreciated. I still listen to your shows when they come out have not written in because there's not been any problems with Linux that I could not handle. Well, that's a good thing. Linux just works, and I find it much easier and less expensive to use than Windows. Welcome to California, Bill. I grew up along the coast a little way south of LA. I am in Florida now and would not mind returning to SoCal, but Unless I win the lottery here, it's out of my price range. Thanks for all you do for those interested in Linux. I have been using it for over nine years and find it as enjoyable to use as I did then, though a mite easier now. Jim.
1: Well, thanks, Jim. I like California a lot. Uh, we provided Jim with a couple of links, and he replied, Thanks to the link, the crone Help." i looked at the manual page for audacity and there is no option to start audacity in record mode is this true or is there a way to do it and larry responded and you wrote not that you were aware of the timer function may be useful though and then you provided him a link to the manual page for audacity
0: yeah, and specifically for a timer function that until I did the research, I didn't even know was in Audacity. So, either. P- yeah, apparently you can start a timer. What? Okay. That's sounds crazy. Um, yeah, I know. So, hopefully, Jim, that helps out. Yeah. And uh, we, we'll also include links to the cron uh, tutorial that we have, as well as to the timer for Audacity in Do case anybody's interested cron in that. Jumps? No, not anymore. I used to have a couple running, but I found other ways to do it that doesn't require Effort. Uh, a cron job. Yeah, exactly. There, <laughs> there's lots of ways to do automation in uh, in Linux, and right now, I don't have a need for the cron jobs. But then again, I'm not doing a lot of stuff in the background, so it's a very valuable tool if you need it, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Uh, This next one will break up into two parts because Alan wrote us a long email, which we like long emails. It just takes us a little longer to read them. That's all. Alan wrote Larry and Bill. First of all, I have been listening to Going Linux for a couple of months. I found it through the Stitcher app on my phone and I found it enjoyable and insightful each time. Thank you. As stated in the subject line, I'm writing to primarily comment on the feedback from a listener, Madison I think, who mentioned wanting to use an application like Scrivener on Linux. You guys recommended Scribus as a, or Scribus, I'm still not sure how to pronounce that, as a possible alternative from the perspective of a desktop publishing solution. I use Scrivener successfully on my Ubuntu-based system, and I love it. I know the original source of this issue from a previous episode of your podcast mentioned using another distro like Arch or Slackware, I think. The developers of Scrivener, at least the last I knew, continue to have versions for Windows and Mac, for which they charge a very fair price. They released a beta version for Linux several years ago, never charged for it, and have since stopped active development for it. I expect because the potential pool of customers is not large enough to justify continued investment. However, the last Linux version produced is a fully functional version with no limitations inherent in the actual program. I've used it through several iterations of Kubuntu and Ubuntu over the last several years, currently on Ubuntu 16.04. The original commenter mentioned using an older version from the repos of the original posters distro, I think, and the latest version was released by the developers of Scribner as a deb package, so unless one used a Debian-based system, it might be a little more deprecated. They also have a more generic source code version in .tar.gz formats from which one could install from source. Although I have not done that since I had the Deb file option.
1: Allen continued. I mentioned all that to say that the magic of Scrivener for novelists, screenwriters, researchers, like in a university setting, is that it incorporates a system of organization and format that allows one to keep research notes, versioning, and tons of other specific to writing projects that, as the original listener stated, would require several other apps to achieve the same result, but in a less cohesive fashion. From the vantage point, Scribulous wouldn't be a comprehensive solution for most of us who do any formal writing. In case you might want to pass it along to the original Commenter, I include a link to the page where the latest versions of Scrivener for Linux are available, and this version might have been packaged for other distros separately somewhere, but I'm not sure. And we'll include the link in our show notes. And Mm -hmm. he continues writing, I hope whoever of you reads this long missive had plenty of coffee to help you make it through. My apologies for being so lengthy in my response. Thanks for the great podcast and your service to those of us out here who are always looking for more ways of going links. Alan, Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia.
0: All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for all that. That's uh, really, really helpful for those who are professional writers or those who do writing on a regular basis. Sounds like Scrivener is definitely an option for most folks. All right. Well, Nathan provides us our next feedback. He writes, Greetings. I do enjoy your podcast very much and have been listening to a lot of your past episodes. Due to the inspiration of you and the folks over at Linux Action Show, I have started to be a bit more brave in converting others to Linux. I am also finding it very encouraging that I am being presented new solutions for problems. So thank you very much for all you're doing. I was going to offer that I am a little surprised to see that there are Linux distros that don't have the firewall up by default. I think it is one of the reasons why I've become such a fan of OpenSUSE. They seem to, by default, have user security in mind. Sure, it might make setting up other services more difficult, but if you don't know what you're doing with the firewall, I would recommend that you don't set up services. Perhaps it might do all distros well to educate users on proper security practices. Just my two cents. Thanks again for your time and effort on your podcasts. It is much appreciated. Cubicle Nate.
1: Cubicle Nate. What a cool name.
0: Well, thanks, Cubicle Nate. (laughs) And uh, yeah, there are a lot of um, Linux distributions that provide the firewall by default, but don't enable it by default. And unlike OpenSUSE, I think those distributions, including Ubuntu, think that uh, putting a barrier to ease of use like a firewall in place, especially when it's not really needed for the most part in Linux is something that they'd rather not do to especially new users. And Ubuntu is geared more to the new user than OpenSUSE is. And OpenSUSE is uh, part of the SUSE project and they have their focus more on security in the enterprise, in companies and organizations that would use uh, SUSE Enterprise Linux um, more than OpenSUSE. So I'm not surprised that they enable a firewall. They have some other things in place by default that can trip you up if you're a new user and you don't know that they exist. Uh, so I don't really recommend OpenSUSE for new users because of that. But it is definitely more secure than most other Linux distributions that don't have those firewalls enabled by default.
1: Now, in defense of OpenSUSE, I like OpenSUSE. And, oh, I do too, yeah. And uh, I've installed it. I, I, I run on Ubuntu right now, but I've installed OpenSUSE, and, and uh, I never had an issue of getting on the Internet or connecting things, so I don't know. That's just me.
0: Yeah, and I used OpenSUSE before I knew Ubuntu existed, and I liked it a lot, and I really didn't have any trouble either, but then again, I ran across the security uh, setup quite early on in my discovery of OpenSUSE, and I, although I did not really have any problem finding the directions or following the directions on how to uh, overcome what was um file access problem, I think is what it was. I don't remember. It's a long time ago, but uh, um, it was there though. It was a barrier. And if I hadn't been the adventuresome type and wanting to learn about Linux and uh, how it worked and so on, I probably would have said, this doesn't work for me and just kind of abandoned it. And it's that kind of thing that I think the folks at Ubuntu and Mint and so on are trying to avoid. They want more adoption and fewer barriers in front of people to adopt. And Educate them on the need for security, but let's not put barriers that may not be necessary for most users. In the we can way. always add it later. Exactly, I think that's their philosophy.
1: Well, I, I, if just a, a little FYI is, OpenSUSE was the first distro that I actually broke thoroughly. <laughs> 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 What's this do? Oops, the whole system broke. Okay,
0: don't yeah, do that well, again. I think uh, Windows was the first distribution of any operating system that I broke. No, I'm am t- just talking about <laughs> Linux. I mean, i broke a lot more than that, but that yeah. I,
1: I was running Ubuntu when I broke my first system and that was because oh what's this do? Oops, I shouldn't have done that. Yep. Anyway, our next email comes from Ambrose and he wrote Larry and <laughs> <Okay>, 73. <laughs> that would this be is you. be interesting. <laughs> Recently I was reading on the Hacker News about MBR filter A Windows-only program for right protecting the master boot record, or basically uh, Sector Zero of the hard drive. The article's take was that ransomware is now starting to attack the master boot record, but of course there are plenty of other reasons for wanting to protect the master boot record. So, this got me thinking, and believe me, no one really wants to see that. (laughs) (laughs) I did not say that, that's what he wrote. (laughs) Is there any way on Linux to write-protect Sector Zero? I wrote a small script to save a copy of my Master Boot record in case I ever needed to restore it, but write-protecting it would be even better. Thanks for the show, 72 and a half.
0: <laughs> <laughs> 72
1: and a half. Oh, man. Okay, Um. thanks, Ambrose. Um. Stupid question. I thought the, all the changes to the new... Uh, secure boot and everything was supposed to kind of minimize that larry
0: yeah uh well and that may be what he's referring to on locking the master boot record but you know secure boot you need to bypass it in order to install linux or you know there there needs to be something in the distribution that allows you to bypass that um automatically as part of the installation so Secure boot is a great idea, except the way they've implemented it prevents you from installing another operating system on the computer. Mm. So it doesn't work for Linux, unfortunately. Uh, And as far as some other way of locking the master boot record from within Linux, I'm not sure how you would do that. I'm sure there's something out there that would give you that possibility. So if there is a good solution for it, it's going to be something, um, probably that would be implemented at the grub level, which is the bootloader level or something like that. But I'm not an expert in any of this. So I, I really don't know how you would go about doing that. And Whenever that occurs, where Bill and I don't know how to do something, we toss it back to our listeners. Anybody out there know how to lock the master boot record from within Linux?
1: The only thing is the, the master boot record needs to be able to be um, written to in case you add uh, like uh, devices and stuff, because isn't that what tells the, the, the computer what devices need to be started up? And if you add... Or, Take something away. I mean, isn't, that, isn't it kind of growing with uh, with additions and stuff?
0: I'm not sure how that works, quite yeah, frankly. Me um,
1: so I'm sure I just put my foot in the mouth. So please flame me uh, all you want. Uh, but yeah, Master Boot Record. Uh, I've never had an issue with Linux with the Master Boot Record. As far right. as being infected, I've had I had one machine that had a master boot record uh, infection, and I had to just bl- blow the whole system away, and it was Windows, of course,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and restore it, uh, and had just you know wipe everything because it, the, it was just persistent. But I've never, to my knowledge, had any problems with uh, master boot record problems with Linux. So that's just I, I don't know if it's. If Linux looks at it differently or, you know, whatever. But, you know, a program that affects the master boot record on a Windows machine, even if you have like a Linux um, partition, you know, like some of us have a dual boot system, uh, Mm -hmm. Linux is just going to ignore it because it's a Windows program. (laughs) Who, Who cares?
0: Anyway. Just thinking about how this works logically, you you need the master boot record functional for the system to boot up. And as long as nothing has changed in your system, you could lock the master boot record and it'll start just fine and leave it locked when you're operating the computer. That should work just fine. But you do need to be able to edit it if your hardware changes or if your configuration changes somewhere or another so that it will boot properly. But, um How to go about doing that? I don't know. Certainly your script that saves a copy of the master boot record in case you need to restore it is a good way to handle that, uh, I would think, at least. And in the early days of Linux, and if you've done Linux from scratch, a lot of what starts up in Linux before you actually see the desktop is a number of scripts that run on boot before the desktop is started, and so your method sounds like if if you run your script at boot time sounds like uh, the kind of script that would be part of Linux if someone had decided to implement this kind of thing in Linux from the beginning uh, I don't know. The value of doing that, well, I guess I do know the value of doing it. it. It prevents, you know, Master Boot Record from being overwritten by things like infections, things like that, that Ambrose is talking about. But I would much prefer to prevent that. You know, uh, prevention is better than a cure sometimes. So and but doesn't mean we shouldn't develop a cure. Yeah, well,
1: I think this needs to be understood linux does not use windows master boot record it uses oh right yeah if you have a master boot record in windows it's infected and you boot into linux it uses a totally different system so i mean it's not going to really affect linux as far as i know you know because uh, grub interacts differently than the master boot record and you know just uh, speaking on the Master Boot Record, it's kind of a a mess because it did not take much to to corrupt one of those. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, Larry, but where they, it just finally something just messes it up totally, <laughs> and you're yeah, out of yeah. luck. So I really haven't had that kind of a problem, uh, but yeah, it would be interesting to see if someone knows something uh, about how to lock Master Boot Record.
0: And uh, as far as Linux is concerned comparing it with other operating systems. What starts up before the operating system even starts is the BIOS or EFI. And I think that's the level at which you need to start thinking about sector zero of your hard drive. Uh, so it's really not a, a Linux issue at all. It's like you said, Bill, it's, it's a, an issue for computers in general. And maybe there's a way within Linux to write protect that portion of the computer but um never run across it and as you can tell by us floundering around it's not something that either of us have dealt with
1: no but uh if anybody knows a way to do it or if there's an application uh let us know yeah speaking of applications i actually have one and it's one i've done before but this one really saved my bacon (laughs) Okay. Uh, it's, of course, we always talk about, I, I use a lot of Chrome, but I started using Firefox and I've updated to the latest um, Firefox. Uh, I think it was last week. Anyway, um, the company I work for, uh, I don't know why they do, but they use Silverlight. <laughs> Mm. (laughs) And so Chrome doesn't support Silverlight. Chromium didn't want to support Chrome. It just didn't work. And I'm like, I've got to get on this thing. And I didn't have my Windows machine. So I said, let me just try something. And Firefox actually supported Silverlight. So I could actually go in and, you know, because it's that open enrollment now. So you have to pick all your stuff. Oh, yeah. And... What's nice is it's nice to have more than one choice of a browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so we all can get a, a chuckle. Um, I went, when I got home, I uh, went on my Windows machine and used the new um, Edge Explorer or the, mm-hmm. the new Edge browser they built into Windows 10. Right. and It didn't support
0: Silverlight. <laughs> Yeah, as I understand it, uh, Edge still hasn't caught up with the features of Internet Explorer, but if it were to catch up with all those features, it would probably be not as secure as it is. Uh, So um, It reminds
1: me of Chrome in a way. (laughs) I think it's a WebKit thing
0: now. I think it is, too. And the other thing is, I think that it's pretty indicative of where the development has gone with Edge, even though... Microsoft continuously pushes people to switch from Internet Explorer to Edge. The fact that they offer both browsers in their operating system indicates that Edge isn't quite on the cutting edge yeah, pun intended. It's,
1: <laughs> it's just it's just funny. I actually sent a message to the to the web administrator and said, uh, you know, Silverlight doesn't work on like almost all browsers. I said I think it was Monday, Tuesday, this week. Now there's a note that they're phasing out Silverlight. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just sitting yeah. there going, you know, I don't know if it would work on uh, like a Safari, if you had a Mac or whatever, because I don't have a Mac any, anymore. And uh, mm-hmm. so I'm just sitting there going, why would you build a whole infrastructure <laughs> around uh, Silverlight I mean, I, I get it. It's, it looks snazzy and pretty and everything. But then, uh, technology has progressed. You don't need it anymore. And so, it is is funny. Microsoft's browser didn't work. Chromium didn't work. Chrome didn't work. Uh, and the only one that worked was Firefox. I'm like, thank you, Firefox. Thank you, Mozilla. I did not want to have to go into the uh, our corporate office and use one of their computers yeah. yeah, it's like, I don't know who's touched this thing. But it was just it was just really funny that when I tried to use edge, it wouldn't work.
0: <laughs> right. So right, Microsoft exactly.
1: product doesn't work with a Microsoft product.
0: Well, that kind of happens more frequently <laughs> than you would think. So do you have but, an
1: application uh, pick today?
0: Well, yeah, as I've been thinking about it, I've been using an application that many folks don't even know exists on their computer, uh, because there's nothing in the menu to select it. And it's something that really kind of runs in the background when you need help with your computer. And by way of background to what this application is and does, I've been working on some developing some help for one of the, uh, Linux distributions And I found that, at least on Ubuntu and Ubuntu-related systems, the help system, when you run it, uses a program called Yelp. And it's not the restaurant-reviewing application. (laughs) It's an application for Linux that is the help system. So to launch it, you would go to any application and hit F1 to get to the help system. Or you can also go within the application and go to their menu and go to help, help topics or whatever it is on that application. Or you could go to a terminal and type in the word Yelp, and it will launch the Yelp system. And if you do it from the terminal the way I suggested, it's not going to have anything in there in terms of help, but it will allow you to go and find all of the help topics for all of the applications that you have in your distribution. And if you don't have Yelp installed on your system, then maybe your distribution uses something else for its help system but uh, yelp is my application pick i'm not sure uh, many people would even know that it exists
1: well i didn't know it existed (laughs) but then again reading
0: yeah yeah well hey you know sometimes you need to find an answer to a question and sometimes the help topic on the application you're using is the right place to go. You know, sometimes going to a forum or it's asking <laughs> as asking the Going Linux podcast folks or even Google or, you know, DuckDuckGo or whatever. It's yeah. just uh, <laughs> a lot more effort than tapping F1 and looking for the topic. So anyway, that's my application pick.
1: Not enough keys. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Keyboard. That's what
1: Keyboard I use. is bad. Ah, oh, come on. I love keyboard shortcuts. <laughs> shortcuts. All right. What's our next episode?
0: Uh, let's see, going to our list of upcoming episodes, I think our next episode will be something around getting support for Linux computers. What a timely topic, how to get support (laughs) for Linux and its applications. Uh,
1: Okay. wonder
0: where that inspiration came from.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe.
0: We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done.
1: If you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining discussion in our Going Linux Podcasts Google Plus community.
0: Until next time, thanks for listening.
1: 73 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>